In recent weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah, and in the book of Jeremiah, we've noticed a promise of God that relates very directly to Advent, to Christmas time. In Jeremiah chapter 23, we read this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Through Jeremiah, God promises a king who will be a descendant of David. Long before this, God had lifted David from very humble beginnings as a shepherd boy, and God had installed him to be Israel's greatest king. But during the reigns of David's descendants, things had not gone very well. And in Jeremiah's day, the rule of David's descendants was about to come to an abrupt and an ugly end as the Babylonians took over Jerusalem and Judah. But in the midst of that upheaval, God makes this promise. In the future, he will raise up a king from what looks to be the dead stump of David's dynasty. A living branch will sprout from that dead stump. But notice the even more outrageous thing that God promises. This king from David's line will also be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. In our English Bibles, when you come across the word Lord spelled with a capital L-O-R-D, that's translating God's personal name, Yahweh. So this promise in Jeremiah 23 is saying something that is just about inconceivable. God will raise up a descendant of David who is also God. And this morning we're going to turn to the New Testament and see how God fulfilled that outrageous, just about inconceivable promise that he made through Jeremiah. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. In the church Bibles, it's page 1025. And in the large print Bibles, 1591. We're going to begin reading at verse 26. So let me briefly explain what happens in verses 1 to 25 of this chapter. The book of Luke starts in a time of gloom and darkness. It begins with a childless couple who are living in a barren place. That couple are Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the place is Israel. But the Israel, we find, is not a flourishing place. The exile in Babylon that we've been thinking about in Jeremiah, that period of exile is now over. It's been over at this point for about 500 years. But the Israel Luke takes us to is a pretty downtrodden place. Nowadays, the Romans are in charge, and they have installed King Herod, who isn't even an Israelite. 
and God seems to be pretty far away. He has been silent for hundreds of years at this point. But in the events of Luke chapter 1, God breaks his silence. He sends an angel to Zechariah. That angel promises that Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, is going to have a son. His name is to be John. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 26. We'll read through to verse 56. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful 
to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is God's word. And it presents us with the work of a faithful God. And then faith in this faithful God. First of all, the work of a faithful God. Verse 26 tells us, God sends the angel Gabriel to visit Mary. Gabriel had previously been the one to visit Zechariah. And God's intervention in Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation had come in response to their prayers. When Gabriel arrived, he said, your prayer has been heard. Finally, this couple had been longing for a child. They'd been praying for a child for years. But the situation in this passage, the passage we've just read, the situation could hardly be more different. Because Mary is not longing for a child. At least, not yet. Not in these circumstances. Verse 27 says, she is a virgin who is pledged to be married. What that means is she is legally married, but she has not yet slept with her husband. In this culture, marriage was a two-stage process. First, a couple were pledged or betrothed to one another. At that point, they were legally married, and they could only be separated by death or divorce. But for about a year after betrothal, the woman continued to live on with her parents. Until stage two of the marriage, when she actually moved in with her new husband. That was how things worked. And here, when Gabriel shows up, Mary is in the betrothal stage. And Luke emphasizes for us, she and Joseph have not jumped the gun. Twice in verse 27, we're told Mary is a virgin. Verse 27 gives us another important detail about Mary's situation. It tells us that Joseph is a descendant of David. Now, of course, Joseph is not a king. No descendant of David has been on the throne since the Babylonians deposed Zedekiah. That was way back in Jeremiah's time. And neither is Joseph a wealthy man. Luke chapter 2 is going to draw attention to his poverty. When Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple in the, the passage that was read for us earlier in the service, when they take Jesus there to be consecrated to the Lord, they offer the sacrifice of the poor. According to Old Testament law, the required offering was a lamb. But those who couldn't afford a lamb were allowed to bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That is all this descendant of David could manage. But a poor descendant of David is still a descendant of David. David's family might not be much more than a dead stump at this stage. But thanks to careful record-keeping by the Jews, David's descendants can still be traced. And miraculously, the line from David is still there. 
Then having given us that introduction to Mary and her situation, now we hear the angel's message to her in verse 28. Look at it again carefully. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. His father David means his ancestor David. At this point, David has been dead for about a thousand years. Gabriel is announcing the fulfillment of hundreds of years of expectation and hope. God's Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled through this child. Mary's baby will be the son of David and the son of God. And he will reign over an eternal kingdom. It's an amazing announcement. And I'm sure Mary is amazed at the grandness of it. But Mary is also a practical girl. And so she asks the obvious question in verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? I'm pretty confident Mary does not have a degree in biology. But Mary is not ignorant of biology. Sometimes people today dismiss New Testament men and women as if they were gullible idiots back then. But these people knew just as well as you and I do that virgins do not have babies. Mary did not think this was normal. And today, the New Testament is not asking you and I to believe this is normal. In fact, it's not asking us to believe this has ever happened before or since. This is an extraordinary, one-of-a-kind act of God. And that is how Gabriel explains it in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The background to what Gabriel says seems to be the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle was a special tent. The book of Exodus tells us when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he commissioned Moses to build the tabernacle tent. It was the place where God would live among his people. His presence would truly be there among them in the tent. And one of the final verses of Exodus tells us about God coming to live in that tent. We're told that a cloud covered the tabernacle. And under the cover of that cloud, the glory of the Lord came down and filled the tabernacle. And here, as the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, he's using the same kind of language. Just as the tabernacle was surrounded by a cloud, so Mary will be overshadowed by God's power. And under the cover of that power, 
the glory of the Lord will come and fill her womb. God himself will be present in her womb. For a few months, Mary's body will be like a tent, holding the actual presence of the living God. And so the child that comes from her will be a human child, and he will also be more than just a human. The angel says he will be holy. The child will be called the Son of God. Gabriel has described a very intentional event, carefully carried out. So what's going to happen to Mary is not some bizarre thing that happens by accident. It's not some quirk. This is the work of a faithful God. This is how God will provide a savior for a sinful world. This is how God will provide an eternal king who will rule with perfect justice, whose rule will bring everlasting peace. God had promised all of this long, long before. And now he comes to this young woman who is in just the right situation to carry this unique child. In verse 37, Gabriel says, no word from God will ever fail. He has promised and he is faithful. At Christmas, we are celebrating something unique. God become a man. And we are also celebrating the faithful character of our God. That's part of it too. We're celebrating the fact that our God has done what he promised to do. No word from God will ever fail. It never has and it never will. Even when he seems to be silent, even when it seems impossible for him to do what he has promised to do, he will prove himself faithful. Our calling at Christmas and every other time, is to respond with faith in this faithful God. That's what Mary does. And let's not miss what a challenge this must have been for her. In our culture today, becoming pregnant before your wedding day does not carry much disgrace, if any, in fact. It's so common, most people just don't bat an eyelid. But in Mary's day, it was not common. And it most certainly did bring disgrace among the people. In Mary's case, her family and neighbors are going to assume she has already slept with Joseph. And Joseph, well, he knows she hasn't slept with him, so he's going to assume she's slept with somebody else. Gabriel has just described Mary as highly favored. He's just told her, you have found favor with God. But Mary may not have been quite so sure of that herself. This birth is going to bring human disgrace on her. And as far as she knows, it will probably cause Joseph to divorce her. 
Mary could end up a divorced single mom without ever having had sex with anybody. So it is not immediately obvious this is a good thing for Mary. But look at her response to Gabriel. Despite the fear and the uncertainty she must have felt, she says in verse 38 simply, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, I don't fully understand. I know this might bring me pain and disgrace, but I trust you, Lord. I give myself to your plans. This is real white-knuckle faith. This is biblical faith. Trusting the faithful God, even when we can't see the goodness of what he's doing. What Mary does next shows her trust, shows her commitment to what God is doing. Gabriel has mentioned her relative Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Mary takes the angel at his word. She goes to see Elizabeth. The journey would have taken her three or four days. And when she gets there, God gives Mary reassurance. He confirms his word to her. It's a pretty high-spirited occasion. Even baby John is buzzing. He dances a jig in Elizabeth's womb when Mary arrives, carrying his Lord in her womb. And Elizabeth says to Mary in verse 42, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And then down in verse 45, Elizabeth says, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. There's a long road ahead for Mary. There's so much that she doesn't understand, but she has shown faith in this faithful God. And he encourages her faith. Still, it's one thing for God to send an angel to Mary and to send reassurance through Elizabeth. Mary still has to be willing to trust God's word. That's what it means to have faith in God. Biblical faith is never blind faith. Don't get that idea. Biblical faith is trusting the word of this God who has shown himself to be trustworthy. It's not a leap in the dark. We've seen that in the book of Jeremiah. God warned for years judgment was coming on Judah. When Jeremiah started preaching that message, nobody believed him. The whole political climate didn't fit what Jeremiah was saying. But Jeremiah kept delivering God's word and God's word came true. The judgment did come. God kept his word in Jeremiah's day. And through Jeremiah, we've seen at the beginning, God repeated his earlier promise of an eternal king from David's line. That didn't happen for hundreds of years. But here in our passage, we are seeing God keep his word again. So faith is about trusting the God who has already shown himself to be faithful again and again and again. That's one of the reasons God gave us the Bible. 
to show us God's track record of faithfulness so that we would have good reason to trust Him today. Blessed is the man or woman today who pays attention to God's track record and believes the Lord will continue fulfilling His promises. The final verses of this passage are an expression of Mary's faith, a poetic expression. It's a song of praise, and maybe it was a spontaneous song, but I think it's more likely this is the end product of the time she spent with Elizabeth. As Mary thought about her situation, and as she connected it to all those Old Testament promises that she would have known so well, God's promises to David, his promises through Jeremiah and Isaiah and the other prophets. This song does not come from a lady who's burying her head in the sand, ignoring reality. No, Mary knows her life has almost certainly taken a painful turn. She knows she may be going home to a divorce. Now, in the end, that doesn't happen because her husband, Joseph, is equally willing to trust God's Word, that what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew tells us about that, about Joseph's faith. But at this point, Mary doesn't know it's going to turn out that way with Joseph. She does know that one way or another, life is not going to be plain sailing for her from now on. But even as she realizes that, she produces this song of praise to God. How is that possible? To praise God in the midst of difficulties and uncertainty. When your life is not turning out as you were expecting. It's possible because Mary has expanded her view beyond the difficulties and the pain. There's a big difference between ignoring our problems and admitting our problems, but looking beyond them. Mary is not ignoring her problems, but she is thinking of greater truths that put her problems in perspective. Look how her song starts in the middle of verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary says, yes, in the short term, this pregnancy might bring me disgrace from a society that doesn't believe my story. That might be the reality in my generation. But all future generations will call me blessed. During my lifetime, God may give me heavy burdens to carry. But I consider those burdens not worth comparing with the future glory God's plans will bring me. And Mary's not just thinking of herself. From verse 50 onwards, the NIV has most of the verbs in the past tense. 
but they should probably be translated in the future tense. Mary is actually looking ahead to what God is going to do. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He will perform mighty deeds with his arm. He will scatter those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He will bring down rulers from their thrones, but will lift up the humble. He will fill the hungry with good things, but will send the rich away empty. He will help his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You see how Mary is looking way beyond herself to God's plans for the whole world. And she connects God's plans for the world with what is happening in her womb. She connects them to this child she's carrying. It's through him God will do all these mighty deeds. And a lot of what she says is picking up on Old Testament promises. In verse 55, she mentions Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. At this point, remember, they're living in deep gloom. But Mary remembers God's promise to Abraham way, way back at the beginning of the Bible, that he would bless Abraham's descendants, that he would bless all peoples on earth through Abraham's descendants. And Mary recognizes it's through this child in her womb that God is intervening to keep that most ancient promise. This child will bring God's mercy and salvation to the world. That's biblical faith. It involves widening our perspective so that we see beyond our own situation and so that we trust the God whose plans include all of history, all peoples of the earth, including little us in our situation. In her society, Mary was a nobody. That's really clear in the gospel accounts. She was totally insignificant as as far as other people were concerned. An unremarkable person. But she understands that God's plans for the whole world include her. God has gathered her up into his plans. She's blessed to be a part of what God is doing. And that's true of us too. If we trust God and make our lives available to serve him, we might be totally insignificant to everybody else, but not to God. Sometimes we get so focused on our problems, we get so turned in on ourselves and our disappointments that we can miss the rest of the picture. It's okay to start with our problems. We don't need to deny them. We don't need to pretend they're small or that they don't bother us. But at Christmas, let's expand our view and remember what God has done. 
He came to earth to save us from sin and death. He came to earth to lift us up out of a pit, to privilege us with a part to play in his plans. And we all do have a part to play. He came to give us good, eternal things. He came in fulfillment of his word through Jeremiah to raise up for David a righteous branch, a king called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And when you and I remember that, we can trust him with our present and our future, can't we? We can trust him. And we can praise him. Let's do that together as we sing our final song. Silently we watch as our God steps down. <laughs>